Let me pray here just for a minute too before we jump in. Uh, Father, you're not a man that you lie or change your word. You're ultimately trustworthy. Lord, and you don't give your glory uh, to anyone else. You, you jealously guard that because of the uniqueness of your person. And would you help us, Lord, to catch a bit of a glimpse, maybe like Moses did as you passed in front of him, would you give us a glimpse of yourself and your glory so that we're tied more closely to you, our hearts bound to yours, our emotions caught up in your glories and excellencies. Father, I pray as Kent talked about, we don't want to just hear words, Father. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to hear and then go away and remain unaffected. But God, would your spirit plant the truth of your word and the glories of Christ into our hearts, our minds, and our souls today. In Jesus' name, amen. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, 8, that the end of a matter is better than the beginning. And I love that. And you know, if you start a series or a wedding or anything else, you know, there's the angst and there's the buildup, but as you're winding down, the finish line is in front of you, you're like, ah. We're finishing a short, it's a short series, five weeks only, but we're finishing the series this morning called God's Will for Your Life Is, and hopefully you've been here and heard some of this, we've said already that God's will for our life is repentance and regeneration, that we come to be forgiven of our sins and reunited by faith in Christ with the loving, living God. That was the beginning of all of this, God's will for our life. God's will then built on repentance, regeneration, was transformation into the image of Christ. It's God's will, Roman 8, for us to become like Christ, to take on His image. And that was the good that God's causing all the elements of our life to work towards, that we become more and more like Christ. Fruitfulness, we said, was also God's will for our life. And fruitfulness, not because we work hard or we think hard, but fruit because we abide in Christ. He's the vine, we're the branches. And if we abide in Him, you cannot help but bear fruit. His will for us is fruitfulness. Uh, Last time we said God's will for our life was suffering. And not because God's a masochist and He somehow simply delights in pain and suffering, but because suffering is one of those key elements God uses to strip away the idols in our life the things that keep us from knowing Him more intimately and fully. And anything that keeps us from knowing God is not a good thing. So suffering is towards that end. This morning we close on this note, God's will for your life is His glory. God's will for your life and mine is His glory. Singularly, that is the ultimate goal of your life. I don't know if you're like me... We talked about in the context of suffering, if I tell you God's will is suffering, for most of us, this defensive mechanism springs up immediately and everything's on hold because we don't want to hear that God means for us to suffer. I've had historically, and I've talked to other people that do too though, a similar perhaps rationale or mindset. If I tell you God's will for your life is His glory, that somehow it feels like this onerous, heavy burden that's being put on your back. That somehow you've got to work up to carrying this load that is God's glory. And it doesn't sound like a good thing. It sounds like a burden to be borne. Or maybe it conjures in your mind living somehow for God's glory is like being born and being raised and growing up in a monastery. You know that it's some call to asceticism or... 
or it's a series of good works that I've got to perform that God's glory is somehow onerous. And if we've got that thought, we want to put that on hold. And really, my goal for this morning is very simple and it's very basic. You know, every morning on these subjects, we say we can just scratch the surface of these. And on God's glory, this is a this is a mountain, and, and I'm just hoping that we get to the path at the bottom of the mountain this morning, okay? Nothing more than that. And it's just to look, look at God and God's glory from two different perspectives that at least get us to the beginning of saying God's will for our life, His glory, is a good thing. And it's something that, in my own mind, it makes sense. I can see that. And not only that, But the thought of it is transformed so that it's not a burden, but it's a joy or a delight to consider that my life is bound up with God's glory. That's my hope for this morning. The first perspective is this, and and these are the two keys that we're looking at. Living with an awareness of God that reflects the way things really are. Living in the knowledge of God in a way that reflects reality. This is minimal, but it's huge. And even as Christians, I think, there are ways in which we live life insanely because we don't and we don't want to recognize that our life is tied up in the massive person that is God. And secondly, knowing God as He is, and we'll never know God completely, and that's actually a good thing because we'll just there's more to learn all the time and we'll just keep growing in our knowledge of Him. But growing in some of the specific ways that we know who God is and what He's like so that we're able to delight in His excellencies. So so two perspectives. We see that God is ultimately the controlling influence in the universe. We recognize that. And then past that, that we know something of the particulars about God so that we love Him and delight in Him and glorify Him for His very specific excellencies. That's the goal. If we're successful in living in an awareness of the awesome reality that is God, and if we come to know Him as He is, we will glorify God. It won't be a burden to be born. You will. We don't want to make glorifying God a burden to be born, but see it as the fruit of knowing God, who He is and what He's like. If you read the term glory in the Old Testament, you're almost certainly reading the Hebrew word kabod, depending on how you pronounce it, kavod or kabod, and it means weighty or heavy. It's then translated figuratively and we say it's glorious, it's majestic, it's splendor. But, But the thought is this underneath that, and this is tied to God. God is the most substantial entity, thing, person, force in the universe. And the beginning of glorifying God is recognizing that reality. He is the ultimate substance, gravity, force, person you and I have to do with. If we don't recognize that, we're not rational. We can't live in reality if we don't recognize this. In the New Testament, the word typically translated glory is doxa, and that just means an opinion an opinion about something. It comes to mean a good opinion and then it's translated figuratively splendor or brightness. So, based on those definitions, to glorify God means this, to live with a recognition 
and awareness that He is the ultimate person, force, power, presence in the universe, and therefore we order our lives after Him. And second, that we ascribe to God the glory that is His based on His particular excellencies. He's the controlling force in the universe. We recognize that. We come under that truth. And then as we get to know Him, we ascribe to Him those things that are true of Him, His excellencies. One is sort of more factual, and the other is sort of more delighting in some specific truths. So, is this a hard thing to do? If you say, it's just rationality. God is, and we recognize that. And this is what He's like, and we delight in that, so what's the problem? And the problem is this. There's an inglorious denial that's just part and parcel of your and my humanity. And especially as unregenerate, we are our own God. And we intend to live life on our terms. And we don't want to share that with anyone else. And so we turn from the reality that is God. But even as Christians, we do the same thing in various areas of our life. So while we're saying God's will for our life is His glory, there's this inglorious denial that we tend towards, that we need to be aware of. David said in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glories of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. David says, I just look out at the night sky and I see the glory of God. I look at the stars, the sun and the moon. You know, we don't have to limit it to the sky. You look around at nature, you look at the mountains and the streams, and you say, man, this is glorious. David knows God. He looks at that. He says, this is God's handiwork. This glorifies God. I see God's glory in His creation. And probably we do too. But you know, it's interesting. You get up to Paul in the New Testament in Romans 1, and to David, what's obvious to another set Paul talks about is not so obvious. David sees the creation and says, I see God and His glory. But there's a group of people in Romans 1 that say, what God, what glory. So Paul looks at the same thing in nature, Romans 1, verses 19 through 23, and there's an entirely different response. So Paul's talking here about people who are rejecting God or have rejected God and the knowledge of God. And he says this, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. That's Psalm 19. God's glory is displayed in the things God has made, in creation, in the world around us. They knew God through creation, But they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but in fact became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God, seen in creation, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, this is the deal. God says His will for our life is His glory. And we say, we look at your creation, Lord, and we should see you, but instead we turn around and we say, we don't see it. We reject it. Either as unbelievers or in smaller areas of our life as Christians. We have an insanity. And think about this. Uh, This is like turning away from the sun, turning your back to the sun and saying there is no sun, there is no light. 
because God's glory is so pervasive. But whether it's in a Christ-denying, I don't need God, I don't recognize God, I'm an atheist sense, or if it's as a Christian and I just say, in some area of my life, I'm going to turn from the light of God, I'm going to act as if God doesn't exist, in this little area, it's me, I'm my own God, in this limited area of my life. I'm not turning this over to God. That's mine, thank you very much. There's an insanity that's part of our life. It's a temptation every day to simply diss God and say, I don't see you, I don't recognize you there. When Paul speaks to the Greeks in Athens, he's, he wants to tie into their mindset as he's appealing to them to believe in the God of Israel and the God of Jesus, this Jesus who rose from the dead. And for them, it's a crazy story. But he says this in Acts 17. God determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. These are the nations that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. And he's probably appealing to Platonic thought. You know, the the man in the cave that sees life through shadows and I'm groping in the cave in the shadows looking for God. Paul's playing on their history and their literature. He says, yet He is actually not far from each of us. And here Paul quotes one of the Greek authors when he says... In Him, in God, we live and move and have our being. In God, we live and move and have our being. Paul quoting their own author to say, this guy had it right. In God, we live and move and have our being. You can reject God, but you can't get away from Him. You can deny Him, but you live, you exist within Him. You know, if you go to David again in the Old Testament, Psalm 139, David asks this question, where can I go to get away from God? You know, in those moments of my life when I just want to flee and hide, where can I go? Psalm 139. Where can I escape from your spirit? Can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down into the depths of the grave, you're there. Take the wings of the morning, go as far east as I can across the vast seas. You're there. Your hand leads me. In fact, you, you know, David says, I go as far away as I can. I'm running from God. And I, and I turn and I see, well, he's holding my hand. I thought I was escaping him, but he's got hold of my hand. But maybe I can hide in the darkness. No, darkness is as bright as the day to you. David says the same thing the Greeks did. There's no escaping the presence of God. You can't get there. Away from God's presence is not a place to be found. It doesn't exist. Can you imagine a fish swimming in the ocean, denying the existence of water? In Him we live and move and have our being. Or think of this. Think of a raindrop born in a moment on a speck of dust in a cloud. And it falls in love with itself as it's hurtling from that cloud to the ocean into which it will be absorbed and its identity lost, and it's declaring its own excellencies as it falls from the rain cloud into the ocean from which it originally came in the first place, denying the existence of the ocean. Think of the earth around the sun. You know, we're in the solar system, the sun's system. And you know, it's the sun. What is it? It's the mass. 
It's the kavod, it's the glory of the sun that holds the earth in our orbit. This earth can't go any place that that sun doesn't let us. The mass, the gravity of the sun holds this earth in its orbit. We are captive to the glory of the sun. Not only that, but everything on this earth that is alive owes its existence and its life to the light and the energy of the sun. If the sun didn't exist, there would be no life on this planet. None. Can you imagine the earth saying, what sun? I don't recognize the sun. I reject the sun. And yet the earth owes its existence to that weighty gravitas substance, the sun. When we talk about recognizing God simply as who and what He is, the great substantial element person force within the universe to be reckoned with, that's the beginning of glorifying God. He is. And in Him we live and move and have our being, and there's no escape from that. And guys, rationality, reality is to acknowledge that awesome fact. God is God and we're not. And our existence is absolutely dependent on Him. And in any way that we reject the notion of God or the reality of God, we are insane. Because that's not reality. We have left rationality behind when we deny God who He is, that He is the controlling force, not only in the universe, but in my life and yours. And ultimately, it's to Him that we'll give account. We live in the orbit of God's gravity. We swim in the ocean of His being. And our brief lives are begun. They're lived and they end by His providence. That's the truth. And if we don't acknowledge that, you can't begin to glorify God. Not just as a pagan who comes to Christ for forgiveness but as a Christian saying, all of my life, every area of my life is lived within the gravity, the person, the power, the presence of God. I acknowledge that. That's the beginning of glorifying Him. Back to Romans just briefly. Paul gets through all that theology. You know, in chapter 1, we're turning away from God, but he's building his case. You know, the theology, we're all lost. We need a Savior, and he works through all of that. And he gets through God's providence in Israel and the nations, 9, 10, and 11. And at the end of chapter 11, when the specific theological portion of Romans ends, this is what Paul says. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And this is his conclusion. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Therefore, to Him be glory forever. That's the conclusion of recognizing that God is and that we live and move and have our being and substance within God. Why? Because it's from Him, through Him, to Him all things. That's why He deserves glory forever. He's the ultimate presence in the universe. And we're simply recognizing that. We came from Him. We're in Him now. We're going to Him in the future. We're that temporary drop of rain, of water on a speck of dust dropping from the heavens into the ocean. 
and the ocean and the clouds and the environment, that's God and that's our life. And Paul just says, he's the deal. We frame our life around him. Now, because God knows that we have this inglorious tendency to deny him, his existence, he commands that we glorify him. The apostle prays that we would glorify God, and the angels give us the example, or they model glorifying God. You know, um, this is such a huge subject. I've had conversations in the past with different ones about this. You know, what does God get out of this? Why does He command our glory? You know, we've got this huge tendency to, to avoid it, to avoid His glory in one way or another. And He knows that, and so He makes it easy for us. And first He says, do this. So 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul was summing up a context of a discussion about what should we do? We're new Christians. Do we eat this meat? Do we go to this market? What about idolatry and all this stuff? And so Paul just puts it this way. Whatever you do, do to God's glory. Whatever you eat, wherever you go, whatever your conversation is, whatever you're up to, if you just say God's glory is your goal, you're good to go. That's the end. That's the beginning and the end. That's what you need to figure out. If God's glory is your goal, you'll do the right thing. God's glory, your goal. Commanded. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 puts it this way, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Walking worthy of God is walking in a way that glorifies Him. It's based on His glory. We're called to it. Walk in a manner worthy that recognizes God's glory. 1 Peter 4.11 puts it this way. Whoever speaks, speak as one who is speaking the utterances of God. That when I speak, I'm to understand the words coming out of my mouth, I should be able to attribute to God Himself. Whoever serves, serve as serving by the strength God supplies. Serve as if it's God in you in that moment serving through you. Why? Why do we think that way? Why do we speak that way? Why do we serve that way? So that, for this purpose, for this reason, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do it so that God is glorified. Through Jesus Christ, that's the deal. Philippians 2, 9-11 puts it this way. This frames the context of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Philippians 2 frames the context of that. For this reason, speaking about Jesus, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord... That's good. To the glory of God the Father. Why the incarnation? Why the crucifixion? Why the resurrection? To the glory of God. You know, we say for our salvation, absolutely. That's a good thing. I'm glad. Jesus came to save us. You know, thank you. Why, why though? Bigger than that, why? For the glory of God. 
the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection was for the glory of God. And God is glorified when we worship Jesus, which glorifies the Father who's glorifying the Son. All of that was to glorify God. We're commanded. Paul prays this too. Philippians 4.20 Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Paul writing from prison. And his prayer is, may God be glorified forever. He's praying for the glory of God. 1 Timothy 1.17 To the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The prayer of the apostles. God's word. Glorify God. Last book of the Bible, Revelation 1.6 He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's as time and this earth is wearing down. And last, Revelation 7, 11, All the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. And this is basically the hosts of heaven centered around the throne of God in heaven. And they fall on their faces before the throne and they worship God and they said, Amen. Yes, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. Opposed to our inglorious tendency to deny God and deny His glory, we've got the command to worship and glorify God. We've got the apostles' prayers to glorify God. And we've got the example of the angels glorifying God. He's calling us up to His glory. Now, when we say this, when we come to grips with this, maybe this question goes in your mind. I've had conversations over this. Why is this a big deal to God? Is God insecure? Does He need you and me to give Him glory so He feels better about Himself? Will Jesus feel better because you glorify Him and somehow He's now okay because we said you're okay, Jesus? Is that what's going on here? I had a conversation with a guy years ago and the Gospel was repugnant to him. Uh, very much so. And his view of the Gospel was, uh, God says, love me or I'll throw you in hell. And so you can imagine the call to glorify God sounded like this mean-spirited little demigod saying, I need you to worship me. I need you to glorify me. Now, if anyone but God said that the end or the goal, the purpose of our life is to glorify them forever, if anyone but God said that, it would be a mean little futile thing, wouldn't it? But if the person saying it is the sum and the mass of the universe. Is the God from whom all life springs. And not only that, but something that we'll look at in just a moment. Is the sum total of everything and all the particulars of anything that you and I consider desirable, delightful, worthy. If that's God, and He says glorify me, then glorifying Him would be a good thing. And that is in fact the case. So when God calls us to glorify Him, it's not only the appropriate end of the creature, but it's also the key element that raises us to the absolutely highest heights 
humanity can be raised. God is not a small-minded God that needs assurance of His divinity. He is a loving, benevolent God who is raising us up to enjoy Him And we do that by glorifying Him, by rejoicing and exulting in His specific excellencies. And if we get that, that this this call to glorify God, it changes entirely. It's no longer a burden to be born. It's a delight to be enjoyed glorifying God in our life. God calls us to live to His glory because... He's worthy of that honor and because He loves us and knows that our highest good lies in glorifying Him. You can't do anything better in your life. There's no goal you have. There's no possible goal. There's no potential higher or better for your life and mine than to say, I intend to glorify God. That's the best thing you and I can ever do. It's the highest thing to which we can ascend. It's not possible to have a higher motive for living or a greater goal for life than God's glory. John Piper, and by the way, you know, Piper's been, I think, for the church revolutionizing the concept of glorifying God over about the last 30 years. And he did it by pointing this out that if we delight in God, we will glorify God. That the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That's probably his best known quote or phrase. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. If we understand that delighting in God is the same as glorifying God, then glorifying God ceases to be labor and it becomes the fruit of knowing God. It's the absolute end to which our life is going to go if we know Him and delight in Him. And this is the thing, everything that you or I could ever find desirable is ultimately from God. That's the deal. That's the deal. Think of this, Uh, we had a wedding this weekend, it was great. You know, if you think of a young guy and he sees this beautiful young woman, right? And he sees her and, you know, he's taken, right? He's smitten, he sees her and she's beautiful And so what does he want to do? He wants to hang out with her, doesn't he? You know, and the nights are long because they're sitting in the car together. Maybe like last night, sitting in the car together. You know, because you don't want to part. And and I just want to hear what you think. And I just want to hang out with you. And you say to that young guy, how hard is it for you to set your affections on that young lady? Well, it's like falling down. I can't help myself. How hard is it for you to schedule time to see that young woman? It's the priority. It's the top of my calendar every day. Is that work? It's not work. He is in fact glorifying her because he's attributing significance to her in his life. He is in this sense, and I don't mean this as idolatrous, he's worshiping her by recognizing her value. It's not work. He's glorifying her because he sees and appreciates her qualities. It's like falling down. The angels in heaven don't work at glorifying God. You know, I don't know if anybody else felt this way. Years ago, you know the, the uh, six-winged seraphim in heaven, you know, cover their feet, cover their face, or the fly right around God's throne. Do you remember? 
Now, Isaiah 6, you see the same thing. Ezekiel 1 and 2, you see the same thing. You know, and what do they do? Does this sound boring to you? They fly around saying, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, 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 holy. Forever. Does that sound boring? Because I thought, wow, is that it? You know, is that, is that it? But, but think about this. So, if, if in God is everything desirable, because that's really what we're saying. If God has within himself everything that's desirable, and you keep getting a new glimpse of something desirable in God... See, you and I, we'd be blown away with the angels too. So God's infinite and eternal. It won't matter how long we exist. We will never plumb the depths of God. You'll never see the end of His glory. And that's what's going on for these angels. Angels and human, humans, we're finite, right? We start in time and we go forward forever with Him. But God's, He's gone before ever the other direction too. We can't get to the end of Him. So think of this. The angels that hover around that throne that see God, it's as if God moment by moment gives them this new depth of perception of who He is and what He's like. And they see this new deeper glimpse and they say, wow, He's holy, holy, holy. He's unique. He's absolute. He's the deal. That's good for that moment. And then God gives them another view. And they're blown away again. He's holy, He's holy, He's holy. And moment by moment, God just gives, He keeps opening up the panorama of His goodness and it never ends. And all they keep doing is they keep looking at God and they're like, holy, holy, holy. He's glorious, He's glorious, He's glorious. And it never ends. God, that, that's not the most boring thing. They're in the most exciting place in the universe because they see God's glory moment by moment expanding before them. This is not a good example, but when I go to Colorado in the summer, which I'm glad to when I can, you know, and by the way, I enjoy the drive across the plains of Kansas. I think it's beautiful. And I enjoy eastern Colorado, which is, frankly, Deneen, much more barren than western Kansas to me is eastern Colorado. I mean, give me a break. But, you know, as you get within sight, somewhere, I can't remember how many miles outside Denver, you start seeing the foothills, don't you? And you're like, oh, man, that's so pretty. You know, and then you go a little further and you see the front range. It's like, oh, man, that's, that's beautiful. And then you get up in the mountains. You see the snow-capped peaks. Yes, we're on the same page, Al. See the snow, snow-capped peaks. You see the valleys and the streams and the waterfalls. And you're like, it just keeps getting better. That's what we're talking about. We're talking this morning about getting on the path that goes into those mountains. That's all we're talking about because it just keeps getting better. And guys, remember, we're talking about glorifying God. This isn't work. Because if we know Him, if we see Him with the angels, that's what we'll do too. We will glorify Him. You won't be able to do anything else. God is the ultimate standard and source of beauty, and everything of beauty you've ever seen is a hint of God's beauty. It's just a drop, though. It's, it's just the smallest speck of an inkling of the beauty to see in God. God is the ultimate source of every pleasure. 
Every pure pleasure you'll ever experience whispers of the pleasures to be found in God. We take pleasure and we think that we created them and they're our little secret, this pleasure, that. God made us. God made us for pleasure. He made us to enjoy things and that starts in Him. Your pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16, there are pleasures forevermore to be found in God. Every pleasure we have here hints at the pleasures to be found in God. God is the source. He's the standard. He's the definition of love. And every lesser love you and I know and experience here on our time on the earth, it speaks to God and God's love. God is the source and standard of truth. And all that is true finds its source in God. You know, the height of sort of small-minded pride to me is the scientific community in our day that thinks they're discovering these new things that are blowing them away and the cosmos is and the cosmos is all that there is and we are the priesthood of the cosmos. And it's like, you guys have no idea. And it doesn't matter what wave of, uh, of the Big Bang you think you just saw in the universe. It doesn't matter what little speck of knowledge you think you just came up with. God, the one you deny, is the source of all truth. He's it. When you find some new, new truth that you revel in, that's just the beginning of getting to know the source of all that we can call true. That's God. God is, God has in Himself all that's ultimately desirable. And the fruit of knowing and delighting in God is a life lived to His glory. We glorify God when we obey Him. If you and I have a life practice of obeying God, it's because we're confident of His wisdom and His benevolence. So we obey Him. But it's, that obedience is born of a knowledge of God. We can trust Him. We praise God because we recognize His majesty. We focus on Jesus because we know the Father delights in the Son. And so we do too. L living, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. Living for God is the only motivation deep enough, broad enough, significant enough to direct you for a lifetime. This is the deal. We talk about uh, the love of God, fruit bearing, knowing Christ, transformation, and it's all good. But all of that is on the umbrella of the glory of God. Why did Jesus come to the earth? For the glory of God. Why should you and I draw breath? For the glory of God. Every other motivation you and I have short of the glory of God is futile. It will not take you home. It will not sustain you when you need to be sustained. You won't have what you need in this life to live life well. And guys, this is the thing. We just cheat ourselves of peace and joy when we deny the glory of God. The best thing we can do, the highest goal to which we can aspire is to be worshipers of God, glorifying Him. It is the creature at our highest pinnacle of existence to see God as He is, and therefore knowing Him, to glorify Him. It's not a burden. It's a delight. It's not a weight on our back. It's a pleasure to glorify God. So, sorry, I need to wind down. Uh, my good friend Ryan put a nice image on the Facebook last week that the Halpinator with big bold fonts that say, read your Bible. I just want to say, I don't want to go finish the day this Sunday without saying. So how do you get to there? How do you see God and His delights and His glories? And 
You know, His Excellencies, yeah. You read your Bible. And you don't just read, but you meditate, you park there, you think about it, you chew on it. You pray, you spend time with God in prayer, you fellowship with the saints, right? It's the same thing, right? How do we get in all these things? Yeah, you read your Bible, you pray, you fellowship with the saints, you take advantage of the ways and means by which God has said, I reveal myself to you. That's what we do. That's how we get there. If you've noticed in this five-week series, we haven't talked about God's will for your life is health or wealth. Good looks, better appliances, that's on my list, big houses, retirement plans. We haven't said anything about any of those, have we? You know, in God's providence and economy, you might, you might have all of that, and that'd be fine. But at the end of the day, none of that will matter. In and of itself, none of it will matter. It's God and His glory. It's these things we've been talking about that are God's will for your life and mine. And if you get that, whatever you have of this other stuff, it'll be fine. Whatever you don't have will be fine too. It's all the same. Let me wind down by reminding you God's will for your life is be convicted of your sin and of the folly of a life lived independently of Him so that by faith, open-armed faith, I accept salvation and forgiveness in Christ. Regenerated, born again, born of the Spirit. That having been accomplished, God's will for my life and yours is to be transformed into the image of Christ. The one God delights in. The one who is glory. That's your end too, to be transformed into His likeness. It's to bear fruit as we simply abide in Him and He abides in us. We'll bear fruit. It's a suffering that strips away our idols and the things that keep us from seeing God more closely. And at the end, sort of summing all of that up, God's will for our life is to glorify Him through taking account of His magnificence, His goodness, His grace, His awesomeness in everything we do, think, speak. And last, Jude 1, 24 and 25. I love this. Jude is a tiny little book. You know, you say Jude 1. That's all there is. There's one chapter. You know, it's, dark, and it's a dark concept. It's about false prophets and guys to be aware of. And it's dark language. And yet Jude closes on this note. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Isn't that great? I love that. Father, thank You for saving us. God, thank You for giving us Your own life, Your Spirit in us and on us. Father, would You help us to despise a life so mean and so low that we deny You, or in which, Lord, we, pre we pretend to hold certain areas of life as somehow independent from You and Your goodwill. Lord, would You liberate us by the true knowledge of You such that we come under the force of Your gravity, such that we recognize Your excellencies. Lord, such that we join the angels in heaven and the saints of all time around Your throne, bowing down, worshiping You, giving You Your due, us being raised, Lord, to the highest place the creature can attain in Your presence, face to face, the beatific vision, Lord, seeing You as You are and declaring your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.